Welcome, everybody, to AM Byte. And I know some of you are surprised by this intro video, but as I told Mitch, I always like to surprise people. So why not one of the most heartbreaking scenes in all of history, which is the prom scene of Carrie, filmed by Brian De Palma, based on the Stephen King novel, and you heard Blind Melon. Why would I do that? Yes, I got this from the internet, a guy named Hall and Oates created it and i borrowed it so we'll see what youtube has to say but i thought it's very i don't know it is very gnostic and it does kind of exemplify uh gen x after all blind melons no rain really uh taps into what our generation the 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 existentialist anxiety the quiet anger the delirium and all that and People have always wondered, well, what's wrong with Gen X? And the answer is always probably that we read too much Stephen King, Dean Arcoons, uh, Clive Barker when we were young. 
now that I look back, I maybe I shouldn't have been reading this stuff when I was 16, but yeah, some say it messed our entire generations. But Mitch, thank you very much for being on the show. And what do you think of this, everything I've just said? Uh, it's all Stephen King's fault, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, those novels were pretty mind-blowing back then. You got Very mind-blowing. My, my two favorite Stephen King novels are uh, Salem's Lot and The Shining. Mm. And I would actually say that Salem's Lot, in terms of structure, is a model novel. I'm not a fiction writer, but I think that aspiring fiction writers would be doing themselves a good turn to read Salem's Lot and not only look at what King did in that book, but the research that went into it, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think that King receives enough credit for, I'm not talking about occult research per se, but for example, in Salem's Lot, he understands and writes about how the power grid, the electrical grid of a town is laid out and how things can go wrong. And, you know, that's obviously informed by research. And I just thought it was a perfect book. Yeah, I would have to say, God, that's a good one. The stand so probably for, for me. <laughs> you don't, yeah. I know he kind of freed us to the reality of the world and the occult, supernatural world, if you would. And you got to admit, Brian De Palma is a great director when you look at him. that scene. And then we forget what a good actress Sissy Spacek was. You can tell in slow motion she is not acting. She really thinks she's Carrie. Happy yeah. and going to get that you know, win the prom queen. And then, of course, uh, dick-ass John Travolta throws the blood on her face, which is kind of a theme for our lives, right? We think we're getting there. Everybody's happy. And, and then comes boom. John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, I didn't know, but the guy who playing uh, her date, that's a great American, greatest American hero. I thank forgot. You. I feel less alone in the world now. Yes, thank you. I sat through every episode of that terrible show, I and love I loved it. it, and I will always stand by it. Robert Culp played the FBI Brilliant. agent or whoever his uh, yeah his, his handler was. his handler yeah his <laughs> handler. And I've noticed that both in Great American <clears throat> excuse me in both Great American Hero and uh, Carrie, high schoolers are all aged about thirty five years old. <laughs> I noticed this in in the Grease movie too. It's like yeah. they can't find eighteen year old kids you know who yeah. don't have to be in school. <laughs> What about Patrick Swayze in Dirty Dancing? He's like 40. I know. <laughs> Fondling high school girls. It's like, what? I mean, at least, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont, they kind of look like kids, you know. And I'm looking at this crowd, and I'm like, is this the reunion? Did did, did Miguel <laughs> use the wrong clip? That's just, you know, Carrie 2, the reunion. Carrie <laughs> <laughs> 2, yeah, 20 years later. Exactly, in, in some uh, undead world or whatever. So... Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and welcome everybody to, yeah, to A on Bite. I always like to do something different. See you in the chat. Vance cannot make it. He's tied up at work because it's Monday, and Mondays are going to Monday, right? So uh, it'll be just Mitch and I, so everybody be cool in the chat. Don't turn it into the Chatico. And if you have any questions for Mitch, please super chat him because I'll be handling both. I have my eyes on both places. And we'll definitely get to it. So very excited to talk about your book, Mitch. But first, and I apologize, I don't want to make this all about me, but I wanted to sort of announce yes. announce it on social media, but make it a audio announcement for the listeners. But 
my Elvis book has been accepted by a publisher, should be out in 2024. Mitch was instrumental from last January, me saying, Mitch, I got his ideas, what should I do? And you're like, just write the book, dude. <laughs> he did it, helping me out through the process and connecting me to certain people. You've been very grateful and gracious, Mitch, to make this Elvis book come out, and I'm very excited. So thank you, Mitch. And yes, Elvis, America's Magician, will be out next year. And it's such a great book, having read the full manuscript. I can say that with full confidence. It's so beautiful. And as a, I am the number one fan of the man from Tennessee. And <laughs> I discovered stories in there that I hadn't known and insights that, that had not occurred to me. And you really captured Elvis as the consummate American seeker and how much he meant to us, how much he meant to our culture and how deeply dedicated he was to the search. I think that it really would have been remarkable to, you know, sometimes on occasion you meet famous people and what do you talk about? The weather, you know, I have no idea. But with Elvis, you know, you could dive right in. I mean, his reading list is probably very similar to that of a lot of the people watching tonight. And um, it, it's such a wonderful book. I, I devoured it in, in about two sittings. And I know when it comes out, it's going to make a real difference in, in how people understand the man. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think we need, in a way, we need Elvis. Uh, we need Elvis more than ever. He really is American culture, the good, the bad. But he really sort of kept it together. It's almost like he was the personification of post-war American. Well, you read the book. And I was, uh, even when I was writing, I was like, oh, well, Mitch, it has to be Mitch. A, number one Elvis fan. <laughs> Two, been into occultism for decades. Three, embedded in the publishing world. So you were like the trifecta. You were like, if there was a, a case study or an audience for this book, you would be it personified. So, Well, one you. of the things I like in, in the opening of the book is you point out there, there are Beatles people and there are Elvis people. And it's not that one dislikes the other and it's not a contest, but inside of us, there's that core fan. I'm always a been a core uh, Elvis fan. You know, that's that's always, always, always been it for me. And uh, I felt musically, uh, you know, in terms of being an audience member, I felt very lost in the late 70s because I, I was looking for that that raw sound. And then I found it in the Ramones and it changed mm -hmm. everything. But uh, it was Elvis that was at the foundation of that. Anyway, all this is to say the book is such a delight and I'm so excited for it to come out. And uh, it's it's got a killer title, uh, killer author, and you did it. You know Thank the you. the the council was just write the damn thing, and you just wrote the damn thing. <laughs> exactly, that's what you said. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, you're talking about the famous scene in um, what's the name? Uh, Pulp Fiction, where the Mia Wallace character. You've got ass Vincent Vega. John again, John Travolta. He's sulking, and she's filming him. She's like, there are two kinds of people in the world, Elvis people, Beatles people. They might like each other's music, but they can never join. That tells never. you who you are. And I thought I was always a Beatles person until last January when you told me to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> I became an Elvis person. That's very exciting. <laughs> well, maybe we can do a special episode of Aeon Bite where I interview you. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. let's have fun. I, I'm, I'm giving Carrie introductions, so everything's on the table right. and a book that i think elvis would have loved like you read in the book he used to have uh wherever he traveled tour when he went out he had an entourage 
of workers that whose only job was to carry 200 books of the occult so he would read it it's a pity if your book had come out he probably would just want one book he could have taken on a trip that would be modern occultism he would have been very happy so tell us about your new book well it goes it's it, it publishes tomorrow so this is really uh the evening launch and i'm so excited about it i worked very very hard on it it's always difficult for any writer to talk favorites you know what's your favorite book i mean i don't know that i have a favorite but but if if I could hand one, you know, to somebody, it would be this one. I, I, I really dedicated myself to trying to write a sprightly, exciting, dramatic, but rigorously researched and deeply sourced and referenced history of occultism as a thought movement from late antiquity until the present. And it, it, it brought up a lot of emotion for me because it, it helped me to realize that we in the West, and I would define West not only as North America, Europe, but also, I think, arguably Middle East, Persia, even, even North Africa, Egypt, in the sense that these were the territories occupied by Alexander the Great, and this formed the foundation of Western culture. So I have a very broad definition of the West, but also a very definite one, because people may look at this and say, well, gee, where's the esoteric material about Hinduism, Buddhism, Shinto, Taoism? animism. And my response to that is that we in the West are in a very unusual position in terms of our religious history, in that if you grew up in India and you grew up in the Hindu faith, you're part of a faith that has been practiced for millennia. Likewise, Buddhism, although China is officially atheistic, you, you have similar traditions, Confucianism, uh, Taoism, um, Shinto in Japan, shamanism, other parts of the world. We don't have that history in the West. We experienced a very, very deep schism in late antiquity where all the polytheistic and seasonally based and initiatory religious traditions were over a course of time, because nothing happens right away, but over a course of time were fully wiped away, first by the advent of Christianity and then later by the advent of Islam. And the Abrahamic religions that hold sway throughout the West today are not at our root. They're not at our core root. We have millennia of history where these mystery traditions, seasonal-based traditions that came to be called occult or hidden during the Renaissance, they were the groundwater of Western life in, in terms of belief, philosophy, and for that matter, science, art, culture, because everything coalesced around this quest for an unseen world. Uh, alchemy becomes chemistry, astrology and astronomy are joined, uh, symbol and architecture are joined. Everything is really joined into one whole from which belief can't be extricated. And yet there occurs this schism in late antiquity where the so-called pagan powers in Christendom, early Christendom are in a struggle uh, for, for dominance, and obviously Christendom prevails, and everything that was known, everything that was known goes underground. Of course, it's reintegrated into other traditions, other names. Nothing ever fully disappears. It's built on top of both literally and figuratively, and, and yet we have this strange discontinuity that other nations and cultures don't have. Mm -hmm. So in the sense, 
um, in a sense, I, I view occultism as a revivalist movement, a movement that has is the inheritor of just strands and fragments from antiquity, because what else do we have? We've lost so much. And yet in our own era, right now, in our generation, we've, we've got Nagamati, we've got translations of the Hermetica that are the first really serviceable uh, English translations that have been produced uh, through projects like um, Project Hindsight, for example, um, astrological texts that had never been translated into English that existed in uh, Greek or Latin are being translated. So we're almost experiencing in the here and now a mini renaissance of re-engagement with the occult. And it's it's for real. Now, of course, again, I view occultism as a, a kind of revivalist, reconstructionist adaptation. We only have threads, fragments from antiquity, but that's that's really what this movement is. We're, we're reconnecting fitfully, fitfully, uh, with foundational ideas that that just dominated Western thought, and then we're gone for centuries and centuries during the what we used to call the Dark Ages, and were rediscovered again in fragments in the Renaissance. I don't think there's another. I don't think there's another culture or or geographical continuity unit continent on Earth that's had that experience of their religious progression experiencing total interruption. So I felt a kind of emotional quality to this as I was working on the book that this really goes back to our, our ancestry, but also our attempts, uh, at least the attempts among some of us to reclaim that ancestry and remake it, readapt it. Well said. And I can tell um, you worked really hard on this book because of the way it flows, you can tell there's a cadence, there's a message from the very first word to how it goes. You could have easily sold out, Mitch. You could have written like, I'm going to write a blog post on Swedenborg. Then a blog, and I'm just, then I'm just going to cut and paste them. I have this dry encyclopedic book. And, hey, I'm off to the races. My book's out. But right. no, you can tell this is, this is much different. There's a message. Uh, there's a, a rhyme there's an energy how all these pieces played with each other all these occultists and thinkers depended on each other and flowed into the 20th century so good job I, again i can tell you. you really poured your own soul into this i really did it's it, you know when, it was hard to believe when i finished it <laughs> and uh, <laughs> i'm excited and i'm nervous you know to have it go out into the world yeah yeah good job and it seems uh in a way, you agree with me. I always say on this podcast, the age of Hermes, and your first chapter is the age of Hermes. And I think that's the other part, too. You would say that, like you said, in uh, Greco-Roman times, anything that was spiritual, philosophical, mystical fell under the umbrella of the great thought or Hermes. He kind of kept this inner world and this astral world there for humanity to enjoy <laughs> And then, uh, you know, even early Christian and Jews were saying, oh, Hermes was rubbing shoulders with Moses. I mean, he That's was right. the Elvis of those days. He was yeah. the guy. And then as your book is about how Hermes had to go underground and keep going underground in the Renaissance and Isaac Newton and up to today. So, yeah, in a way, this is sort of a, a love letter to Hermes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much of what we identify as occult and esoteric today 
emanates from these hermetic writings from late antiquity in the generations immediately following the death of Cleopatra and then later the death of Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because things in our world today that we identify as ancient are not always as old as, as we really think. Um, and occultism is a prime example. I start the book in the age of Cleopatra, which of course people don't necessarily think of as modern because that's where the roots are. Because as these Greek Egyptian scribes, largely based in Alexandria, began writing down fragments of Egyptian esoteric philosophy in the Greek language, they left us Westerners with an expository record that we can at least get our arms around. And so it's a very valuable core sample of Egyptian thought. Hermeticism itself is a philosophy that's been dramatically neglected for, I would say, for centuries. It was regarded as kind of a, a mutt of late antiquity, a mixture of Neoplatonism, maybe with a little <laughs> e Egyptian sprinkles, uh, decorating it, maybe with some Egyptian costumery, but with a false conceit to antiquity and basically just reflection of, of, of mainline Neoplatonic thought. It's only since the 1970s and 80s and more the 80s that through parallel study of, of, of new findings and, and other aspects of Egyptiana, we've been able to accurately relocate the locus of hermetic thought to Egypt. And that should heighten our sense of value. As far as I'm concerned, uh, the first really truly serviceable English translation of the hermetic literature is Brian uh, Copenhaver's um, Hermetica, which was published um, by uh, Cambridge University Press in 1992, not very long ago at all, post Elvis, you know. And <laughs> so this and, 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 and some other translations followed that are very, very good, including one by Clement Solomon and a team of translators that Inner Traditions published in 2000. This is really very recent uh, because the Hermetic literature, because it, its timeline uh, was readjusted uh, in the late Renaissance. There were hopes, as you were saying, that this literature uh, went back to the age of Abraham and Moses and uh, through... through uh, um, linguistic uh, analysis, it, it was determined decisively to have emerged from late antiquity. And once that once that analysis gained sway, there was this kind of binary attitude among Western thinkers to dismiss the Hermetic project as a fraud, a failure, um, something unsavory, a fancy of the Renaissance, but not really important foundational Western thought. And for that reason, for that reason, translations were neglected. So for example, in Harvard's Loeb Classical Library, which is supposed to be the canonized temple of Western classicism, you will not find a single work, not a single work of classical hermeticism. It really is only in our generation that this material has attracted renewed focus, renewed scholarly effort, renewed translation. So my message to listeners is take advantage of this. Don't take this for granted. A hundred years ago, people didn't, didn't have this stuff. There were translations of greater and lesser value, but they were very often turgidly written or pockmarked by a lot of errors. 
we have accurate, beautifully rendered translations of Hermeticism available to us today. Just a fragment of our ancient Egyptian past, but a very valuable one. And so, but it it, it didn't get set down into Greek until very late mm. antiquity. And 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 that's a phenomenon that you find in a lot of our religious movements. There was oral history, there was symbol, things were passed on maybe generationally, maybe through initiatory traditions, but it, it wasn't always common that stuff was written down. And if it did get written down, it might've gotten destroyed because somebody invaded somebody else and, well, we got to get rid of their holy books because, you know, this <laughs> Stephen King stuff is going to cause a lot of trouble. And um, so... <laughs> Hit so, him with a bucket with blood. Huh? Right. So we, we get John Travolta out here. So we lose, <laughs> you know, we, we, we've lost so much, obviously. And a lot of our traditions uh, are not as old as we think they are because they had, because they're, they're reconstructed philosophies due to some of the schismatic activity that I was talking about. A lot of stuff in our world is a lot newer than we think. Even the Jewish liturgy, it goes back to the medieval era and it's very beautiful and it's very steeped in history, but it's not ancient. And it, it just behooves us to remember that. Yeah, there is actually uh, in a sink, I have a quote from you that I think exemplifies what you're saying right now. And uh, let me read it real quick. Understanding occult history requires accepting history as it really existed, not as I might want it to romantically exist. That does not imply that novelty is wrong, nor does it mean that because an idea is old and widely repeated, it is necessarily true. Or because an idea is new, novel, or reformed, it is necessarily trifling. Religion has always been combinative and syncretic. Religion is drawn from a great variety of sources and ideas which are shaped and reshaped across centuries. Very often meaning is found by reading new stories into an object, idea, or practice, or reviving a theme or idea that has perhaps reached us in fragmentary ways. New forms are not illegitimate expressions. So that says it all, right, Mitch? I think that that observation was in the service of introducing the work of Eliphas Levi, who did so yeah. much to really instigate the occult revival of the 19th century, uh, which was brought to fruition by Madame Blavatsky, um, about a generation after Levi. And Levi uh, was really responsible for creating the modality of correspondences between tarot and Kabbalah. And L Levi was such an aficionado of Kabbalah that uh, he changed his own name, Louis-Alphonse Constant, to um, uh, Elephus Levi Zahad, which he thought was a kind of phonetic a correlation to his uh, to his French yeah. name, and and Levi's correspondences between tarot and Kabbalah are completely sui generis. You know, you'll find absolutely nothing in Kabbalah that corresponds with or even hints at Levi's theories. That doesn't mean there's not brilliance to them. You know, he 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 was operating as a kind of entrepreneur of of ideas he was casting about for a means of reconstituting a cult tradition at a time and a place where the threads were very slender very limited and the field itself was considered completely discredited this is very late into the so-called age of enlightenment 
universities, hospitals, cathedrals no longer have resident occultists as they did for a precious period of time during the Renaissance. And so Levi is, is, is trying to weave a full garment out of very thin threads. And he, he gleaned these ideas about uh, correspondences between Kabbalah and tarot from uh, earlier French writers, um, Comte de Mallet and Cour de Gibeline. Uh, writing in the late 1700s. And then he just took the ball and, and he ran with it in a rather dramatic way. And he created this woven cloth that cemented among a generation or more of occultists that there was this intimate connection um, between tarot and Kabbalah, between tarot and ancient Egypt and so on and so forth. Tarot is a secret hermetic uh, codex that unlocks <laughs> the mysteries of the universe, corresponds to um, astrological signs and elements and uh, numerals and, and Hebrew characters and so on and so forth. And um, although there are hermetic influences in tarot, because hermeticism is so foundationally important to us in the West, that's a total invention. That's a total invention. And also, by the way, a brilliant invention and not one that I'm going to run down if people find value in it. And I want to say this, and I point this out very clearly in the book, um, Kabbalah as a tradition was neglected for centuries uh, by Jewish authorities. It was regarded a little bit like the crazy aunt in the attic, you know, like, well, we're responsible for her and we let her out once in a while, but it's not something that students, uh, seminarians, rabbis were encouraged to study. It was considered- This is after Shabbatai, Sevi, and Frank, and all those crazy guys I love. I yeah. love them, because they were so out of their mind. It was, it, so was, it, was, it was within the tradition, but it was also very countercultural, and it was neglected. Right. Now, that right. started to change um, in uh, uh, about the year 1946, when the uh, Israeli-German mm -hmm. scholar Gershom Sholem uh, wrote his book, Currents in Jewish Mysticism. And Sholem by any lights, would be considered a very uh, conservative, mainline, rigorously classical uh, Judaic scholar. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, at the opening of his book, and this was the book that reignited the study of Kabbalah in the 20th century, at the opening of his book, he pays a kind of half tribute to Elvis Levi, saying, look, um, these are brilliant misconstructions. But at least the occultists, at least the occultists, and he even includes Aleister Crowley in this, although he has less kind words for Crowley than <laughs> Levi, but he even includes Crowley in this. He says, at least the occultists kept a flame of interest alive in Kabbalah at a time when traditional yeah. Jewish scholars were almost completely neglecting it. So people are almost too quick sometimes to write off Christian Kabbalah, occult Kabbalah, or modern iterations of Kabbalah as something that's somehow uh, sundry or spoiled or uh, betrayal of the tradition or what have you. And Gershom Sholem, who was one of the most responsible, conservative, and rigorous scholars of Kabbalah in the modern age, he opens his book with these writers saying, like them or not, these guys kept the flame alive. And then he moves on, you know, but I really think people should take note of that, and it's underappreciated. Same here. And uh, do you have any misconceptions that still bother you or that modern New Agers and occultists still cling to? For example, uh, I, I meet sort of a witch or a Wiccan, and they're still uh, quoting Margaret Murray and the Horn God, and I'm like, 
do I correct them or I just whistle and walk away? Do you have any, would you find any big misconceptions even that still people cling on today about occultism? I would say the primary misconceptions occur within mainstream letters when once in a while they drunkenly wander into our neighborhood and feel obligated to write a piece about how fucked up we are. Um, <laughs> the, 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 their, 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 their intellectual quality is very poor. It suffers from under-research, which is a problem that is fixable, and they're too uninterested in their own subject to even bother to fix it. So, for oh example, God. if somebody quotes uh, Margaret Murray to me or references the work of Gerald Gardner, I might, if I felt inclined to respond, and I don't always, because I think sometimes a person can be allowed to have his or her own experience. And I really believe that. Um, I'm not going to take away an experience from somebody. If we're having a real discussion, I can say, look, you know, as with Levi, you know, there's a big historical chasm here, but that doesn't mean <laughs> it's not meaningful. That doesn't mean that there's not pertinence mm -hmm. to it. You know, just earlier today, I was talking to somebody about uh, the question of Atlantis within occult philosophy. And I said, you know, you could view Atlantis as a metaphor for the interest in some kind of prehistorical civilization, which is a warranted interest if you want to get into that material, but view it metaphorically. We, we, we don't have to pick these things apart like we're, you know, dissecting a, a, a laboratory frog or something. Um, it, <laughs> you know, it doesn't need to be understood in this absolutist way. Now, as far as misconceptions go, um, I would say this. First of all, Within the alternative spiritual culture, I think one of the things we have to get away from is trying to advertise our own seriousness by pissing on popular works like the Kabbalion or even the secret. Yes, the dreaded secret. I can't meet somebody, you know, and not within five minutes, they tell me how they revile the secret. And I don't share that point of view. I have very uh -oh. deep differences with Rhonda Byrne, but I, I don't share that point of view. And I don't think that you establish seriousness by uh, uh, um, by directing, you know, your stream of piss at whatever you perceive downward of you, you know. <laughs> I, I don't see any reason for it. I think these these works can be understood within their own terms. The Kabbalion is a modern novelty written in 1918 mm -hmm. that I believe um, does incorporate certain hermetic themes in a very artful way. And mm -hmm. The author of that book, William Walker Atkinson, I think did Yeoman's work of coming through the very, very uh, threadbare uh, uh, translations that were available to him and distilling some psychological points of, of value. That's it. You know, it doesn't have to be some big um, Gerda Dermerung over what's authentic and what's not, especially since Hermeticism itself until very recently, as I said, it was considered like an antique mutt of like pseudo-Egyptiana Neoplatonism. It wasn't that people would not speak of the Hermetica in serious tones outside of occult circles until, you know, the 80s, 90s, and sometimes not even until beyond. So we should be careful, you know, where we direct our uh, stream. And the, the other thing is, in, in terms of uh, mainstream letters, and I write about this in the book, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but that's where the chief mangling of these ideas emerges from. So, you know, mainstream journalists might write a piece about the traditionalists and misunderstand them entirely as these proto-Nazis, all of whom were <laughs> involved in holy grail ceremonies with Himmler or some such. And yeah. it's so insufficient. And and it's so it's so it, it's 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 almost laughable in its intellectual conceit. It's just 
utterly insufficient. And uh, likewise, uh, mainstream folk will talk about Madame Blavatsky coining the law of attraction, which if I'm not mistaken, you can still find on Wikipedia, that our digital library of Alexandria. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, law of attraction, as I write about in the book, is a term was coined by the medium Andrew Jackson Davis in 1855. He was using it kind of in a, in a Swedenborgian sense to talk about correspondences between the individual and unseen worlds or unseen um, dimensions, concentric circles in which humanity lives. It's actually a very hermetic idea. And only later, Madame Blavatsky mentioned it in Isis Unveiled in 1877. And then later, New Thoughters made it into more of a cause and effect law, a, a psycho-spiritual law of like attracts like. And, and so there is the law of attraction. Um, it obviously touches people very, very deeply. Whatever one thinks of it, it, it touches so soundly and deeply on a, a hope, a wish that the individual has to be able to expand his or her sense of agency and, and personal capacity. And I think that that wish should be honored. Uh, one can talk about whether it's effective. I, I dedicated a whole book to it called Daydream Believer. And, um, and, and the point is, you know, the, the mainstream folk, they, they mangle this history and they make it difficult for newcomers to um, occult and alternative esoteric Gnostic spirituality to kind of find their way, which is why we need to be writing our own literature. And I think we're doing a hell of a good job of it, you know, at the moment. Very well said. Yes, these are persistent. They're annoying. We've talked about it, like uh, you just mentioned. Here we go again. Oh, my God. Somebody's saying that Jung and Steiner were friendly to the Nazis. Here yeah. we go again. Blavatsky Tragically was also... Great. Yeah, right, Blavatsky right. was a precursor of Nazism, and she was a. I mean, it just these persistence from both sides. We're not even talking from both sides. It's like it's it's uh, a it's a terrible historical blindness. It, it, it it's it's simplistic uh, to an extreme degree, and uh, I write in detail about this stuff in the book about you know Steiner in the age of the Nazis. I mean, he died yeah. before the Third Reich, of course. Uh, Jung in the age of the Nazis, and I dedicate a lot of time to writing about the charges that Lovatsky seeded the Nazi movement. It's, it's, it's not only wrong historically, um, but it reflects a misunderstanding of how ideas morph and are, are clipped and pasted and, and sometimes forgotten about, it, it, it lost in this kind of like readaptive amnesia. And uh, it's very difficult to draw any kind of straight or direct lines from uh, in the in the gestation of ideas especially when schisms occur and and the rise of nazism and fascism was obviously one such schism in the 20th century where there's a, a complete kind of erasing of of standards and ethics and values that were thought to be intrinsic in society and a complete reworking even if a short-lived one and when you throw symbols and ideas of ancient vintage into that, they're going to get misused and perverted. I mean, that's part of the human story through history. Yeah. So um, people who rush to those conclusions, um, they're really doing a, a, well, what can I tell you? You know, I mean, people are entitled to entertain themselves however they wish. Um, but if, if they're trying to get to a place of, of clarity, they're looking in the wrong direction. Exactly. And people sometimes need to project, they need a boogeyman. Who better than the Gnostics, the Jews, uh, 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. There's there's a there's right. a group that people like it's to just beat on across. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, there was even this underground book that said uh, the it was a joint effort with OSS and the Jews to create Elvis. Like came out of a lab or something. Uh, that like, must be true. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. It had to happen. You know. They had uh, they had these things back then. So, but uh, yeah, the world. What about and when you were writing this book, Mitch? Was there a figure that really jumped out of you that you might that you saw in brand new vistas that you were impressed that you were like, oh my god, I'm I'm glad I've seen this new dimension of a figure now. I even admire him more or her, and I want to share with the world. Anybody like that appear in your book? For me, that was Jack Parsons. Really, uh, a lot of people get interested in Jack just because. There was so much weirdness surrounding him. You know, here's Aleister Crowley and here's Albert Hubbard and here's, yeah. you know, Hubbard and, 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 you know, all these different love trysts and, you know, love triangles and octagonals and, 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 and of course, Jack's background as a scientist and, mm. and, and his deep foray into magic always interests people. And all of that is of legitimate interest. But the thing that really turned me on about Jack and that I really felt very touched by was, if you if you really dig into his life, um, including the few potent writings that he left behind, you can see the development of his search. And he was such a such a brilliant intellect. I mean, just to become a successful rocket engineer in the early jet age, that in itself is a remarkable accomplishment. And and yet, and 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 if that's all his life was, it would be a more than worthy life. But he also dove so deeply into magic and really wanted to find something, was deeply, deeply interested in, um, I would say, deific petition. Can you form a relationship with de with a deity and, and make things happen in the world and, and concretize will? And here he is working as a kind of North American protege deputy to Aleister Crowley. They're exchanging lots of letters. And one thing leads to another. And Crowley gets disgusted with Jack. Jack gets disgusted with him. Crowley felt Jack was weak in the face of the con job that L. Ron Hubbard worked on him. I'm not so sure that's true, but he was a very trusting guy. Um, and ours is an ugly world. And, and so Jack finds himself on his own. And the project that he set himself to very shortly before he died was to question whether we need this very thickly rendered form of ceremonial magic anymore. He, he may have been reacting emotionally against the 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 the, the severed tie with, with Aleister Crowley, but but I think he very um earnestly asked the question as a scientist, as a seeker, as a magician, um is there a way to simplify all of this so that we don't need the rites, the rituals, the liturgy, uh mm -hmm. the ceremony, the costumery, and all of that had been so cemented by Crowley and the Golden Dawn, that it was almost de rigueur among Western occultists. And Jack asked, can we practice, get in touch with, readapt a Western magical tradition on much simpler terms? And then, of course, he didn't really get to explore that fully because his life was so tragically cut short. And when I discovered that side of him, I was very moved because 
that's a lot like questions I've been asking myself recently and wondering the exact same thing. If the individual has a warranted belief, an informed belief in the extra physical capacities of the psyche, is that enough? Is that enough to, I'll put it metaphorically, to project will, let's say, to mm -hmm. select circumstance, to, to contribute to causation? Because in effect, that's really what the magical operation is attempting to do, whether it's ceremonial, uh, whether it's very simple, kind of chaos-based, sigil-based. I would say frequently the magician is seeking the favor of deities, is petitioning deities or demons or spirits, whatever term one wants to use. Um, but but the ultimate end is, is the projection of one's agency, one's creative wish, one's true will, as Crowley would put it. So is it possible that with the really remarkable record that, that we as a human community have today, both in terms of human testimony, in terms of our own individual search, and the wealth of material, legitimate replicable material that's emerged from psychical research, mainstream fields like neuroplasticity, mind-body, placebo, uh, quantum physics, quantum theory, some of the conceptual models of the world that emerge from that, it's warranted to vest uh, a sense of um, stock in, in, in the mind possessing, the psyche possessing extra physical capacities. Yeah. So if we know that, and I believe we do, can we loosen the bonds of ritual, liturgy, prayer? And so I was really touched to see that Jack was trying to work on that at the end of his life. And that for me became the story. Because I think he was, I think he did lead a successful life as a great intellect, great magician, great scientist. I'm sorry it ended so early. But there's such um, gravity to his search. And, and that became the story for me. You know, I write about Hubbard and, you know, all the troubles and the parsonage right. and everything. You can't get away from it. Um, but but for me, the gravitational center is Jack's search. Yeah, it, it was it was wonderful. Yeah, great story. Again, you you talk about so many characters. I'm also glad you give a lot of uh, uh, props to Swedenborg. You know, Blavatsky gets vilified. Swedenborg gets overlooked. But they're both just massive oh, giants. Yeah. And, of course... Yeah, and I love what you're saying about the mind. You know, I've talked about it. It's like we're right back at Hermes because Hermes, as Gary Lockman said, Hermeticism is the religion of the mind. It's getting right Absolutely. back here to this universe in our head, which we forgot for like 2,000 years. And hopefully with your work, with great people like in the chat, occultists, modern Gnostics, we are getting back and we can get rid of this materialism, reductionistic idea that is destroying the world, destroying nature, destroying civilization. But I don't want to get on a soapbox unless you do too. But the other thing I wanted to mention too is, yeah, <clears throat> what I admire about Parsons and I admire about it is that no matter how bad things had got, whether he lost his money, he was fired, he lost his, his woman, for him, meeting his holy guardian angel, the magic was always the most important thing is like, I admire people that no matter what ha happens, meeting the divine is still what they wake up to do. And you see that in Crowley too, regardless yeah. if Crowley had money, he was stuck in Mexico, whatever he had one thing. And 
even at the end of his life, Crowley was still a heroin addict, no money was still even. I mean, you read the Elvis book, even at late in his life, he's fat, his health is dying, he's on drugs. He was still doing yoga, karate, he was still meditating. He was he I admire individuals like that that they never give up when it comes to spiritual pursuit. What do you think of that? Uh, totally. And and I I would include in that uh the magician John D. Um, oh, of course, yeah. He never, he always Levi Austin yeah. Osborne Spare, and of course, Madame Blavatsky herself. You know, I, I, I mm. somehow it escaped my notice, but she was she was only fifty nine when she died. Looked a oh, great wow. deal older, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and um, but she did have an Elvis lifestyle. That... <laughs> oh, she really did, and she accomplished so much in in so short a time, and um, you know, it was really just extraordinary. And I think um, it's hard for people in today's world to conceive of the brutality that existed back then, back then meaning just even the 19th century, and how uh, steep a price you could pay for your beliefs. Like, for example, Eliphas Levi, before he became dedicated to the occult, was a, a Christian socialist, an early proto-socialist. Well, you know, he, he was he was thrown in jail um, by by um, uh, the the monarchical regime at that time uh, for subversive thought. His books were seized. He spent uh, it was either nine or eleven months uh, in a Parisian prison. The records are unclear. His publisher was jailed. They were both fined. So these people had to play skin in the game in, in ways that we rarely can relate to, uh, at least in North America, in the, the 21st century. You know, everything is, is name-calling, everything is posturing, everything is how brave I was to tweet about this and so on. And, and there's absolutely no skin in the game, even to the point of anonymity. Mm -hmm. And you look at Blavatsky, you know, you were saying she gets vilified in Western culture, and yet Western culture also, they can't stop vilifying her, which is suggestive of something. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, one could say, well, you know, she died in, you know, 1891, and we'll just forget about her as this um, Victorian oddity, like a whalebone corset. And yet Madame Blavatsky just keeps <laughs> coming up and keeps getting, 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 getting attacked. And and she, she split open Western culture in a way because she committed the ultimate unforgivable sin, which is claiming, um, claiming phenomena from uh, the unseen or spirit world as a living empirical presence in our physicalist world. And that is the vast age of enlightenment, um, uh, 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 great forbidden taboo in Western culture. You, you can speak of religion in terms of theology, maybe in terms of, you know, some sort of individual uh, epiphany or, or conversion experience certainly through poetry, through myth, uh, through parables. Um, maybe people could talk about the mind-bending experience they had on uh, yeah. ayahuasca or, or, or you know, acid or something. But to talk about the actual um, presence of physical phenomena from some commonly unobserved facet of experience in our world is the ultimate sin, which is why ESP research, however soberly it's conducted, deeply juried, um, careful and unpolluted in its methodology, 
ESP research is, is vilified even more than, 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 you know, Madame Blavatsky or some overt expressions of, uh, of occultism. I, I sometimes joke, but within every joke, there's truth that, that, you know, when I feel I'm taking too much heat for writing about ESP, I, I go back to writing about Satanism because there's less heat, you know, <laughs> I mean, you should see the attacks I get from my ESP stuff, you know, so. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and so Blavatsky, uh, she committed that sin, whatever one makes of her individually. And, 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 and I will always defend her as a being of greatness because when she picked up and left New York City with Colonel Olcott in 1878 and relocated to India, she had only another uh, decade in front of her to live. They, mm -hmm. they were not in good health. She was morbidly obese. Henry Olcott had a gouty leg. Um, there, there were no protections against uh, uh, diseases or, or parasites or illnesses that you were going to uh, attract outside your home base. Uh, they didn't speak the language. They had no particular base of financial or political support, and they just showed up and then worked a worldwide revolution. Uh, they, they, members, early members of the Theosophical Society were decisive in the formation of the Indian National Congress. Uh, Gandhi spoke very plainly and bluntly about this uh, in interviews, wrote about it in articles, letters to newspapers. I quote him in the book with uh, scrupulous referencing. I no. Referencing is very important to me because I, I want people to see that these are not suppositions. I mean, I'm using the tools of a, of a mainstream historian. These are just neglected pieces of history. And we can't understand ourselves if we're neglecting forces like a Blavatsky or like a Swedenborg uh, that did so much to shape our conception, conception of life, even if and especially if we haven't heard of them because it's when things stop having a name attached to them that they've just kind of entered the groundwater. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, even Kurt Vonnegut said uh, Blavatsky is the mother of occultism. Without her, it's like Elvis without rock. Right. We would be, the world would be complete. We probably might not even be having this conversation. No, I would as say as, as I was working on this book, um, I came to realize uh, just more and more the extent to which um, Blavatsky's fingerprints are everywhere, even where you don't expect it, like the revival of witchcraft, modern Wicca witchcraft. Um, Blavatsky's successor, Annie Besant, uh, had a daughter, Mabel Besant. Yeah, Annie Besant was just extraordinary. She had a daughter, uh, Mabel Besant, and um, Mabel founded a, an occult a theosophical lodge in Southern England that attracted uh, Gerald Gardner after he retired from the civil service and, mm. and lived on the, the Southern English coast. And that seems to have amped up his interest in esotericism, occultism. And then, you know, it's, it's just a short leap later to when he wrote witchcraft today. So you'll even find indirectly uh, Blavatsky's fingerprints um, on practices like Wicca with which she's not often associated. And let's not forget she was a woman she was yeah. uh, to change the world in the 19th century. I mean, people don't understand how far we've come back for her to do what she did was monumental for her to being a woman. It's almost like you needed, it has to be magical because again, her impact on culture and the world. And yeah, we've come a long way. Let's what in the 1960s, witchcraft was still illegal in England here yeah. in the United States in the 1960s. <laughs> 
blacks had to drink from a different water fountain and gays were being lobotomized for being gay. So we have yeah. come a long way, people. Don't try. And this is because many of these occultists were also social reformers like Annie Besant and others. Right. They truly they truly understood the idea how we're basically equal under the eye of magic, if you would. Hermes. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually only coming into discussion nowadays the extent to which Annie Besant's book, uh, Thought Forms, which she produced with Charles Webster uh, Ledbetter, uh, influenced the germination of abstract art. And uh, mm. I was privileged to work on a reissue of that book a couple of years ago. So this book that came out in 1905 um, produced these thought form images uh, through Besant and Leadbeater's, uh, Leadbeater's collaboration with artists that, that within which you can see uh, the, the earliest development, not only of abstract art, but, but I would say even early psychedelia. And the visionary nature of this book is, 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 is one that we're only coming to terms with right now, today. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah, so much richness in your book for the audience. He takes us on this journey, talk everything we've talked about. But also what I like too is you also tackle, again, modern, modern the latest 21st century occultism. You know, yeah. the idea of parallel universes, ESP, all the different things that are coming through. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that because I had no idea that you were corresponding with Steve Bannon. I was like, oh, yeah. did I miss that one? Tell the audience Brown. about you yeah. and your, uh, your, your, your uh, proud days with the alt-right. <laughs> Steve, uh, Steve reached out to me after my book, Occult America, was first published in 2009. Right. And he was not a known guy then. He said, look, you probably don't know who I am. I'm a financier, a conservative documentarian. Right. Um, I really loved your book. And it was, you know. I wonder, well, what, what did you love about it? Uh, and he was turned on by the chapters on the burned over district of central New York state and the way that that place uh, in the first half of the 19th century was just the springboard for everything innovative, radical, novel in American life. It was the birthplace of spiritualism, birthplace of new religious movements, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, a birthplace of suffragism, uh, it Mormon, was, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, jo Joseph Smith from there? Sure, Joseph Smith, yeah. or, you know, and the, he knew the, about Abraxas that that blew me away, right? Like, right, right. So many treasures in your that book. Like, family, Joseph Smith family. was into Abraxas. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> um, America's utopian experiments took root there. I mean, you got Shaker villages that started, uh, there, spread as far north as Maine, as far south as Kentucky based on belief, based on belief. It was a hard, hard life, you know, sort of apropos of what you were saying about the seeker, always just returning to the search, returning to the search. Um, people didn't join the Shakers because it was a vacation. You know, they joined it in the search. And, um, and, and all this started in central New York state. So anyway, he was interested in that. We remained uh, friendly for a couple of years. He got uh, very famous very quickly. Um, but nowadays we're not in touch. Not my world. Yeah, yeah, things have changed. Uh, but uh, what do you think about modern occultism? Because, I mean, there's so much. Again, obviously, Gary Lockman deals with it. Yeah. Dark Star, Witch Talk, Meme Magic. Uh, there's so much going on and so many new things that are happening. What do you think? Do you think we're in the right direction? Or what do you think 2023 occultism will be like? 
I think um, I think we're in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, there are scholars in academia, uh, some of whom you've collaborated with, who are doing wonderful things uh, in terms of esoteric studies. April DeConnick, Jeff Kripal, Walter Honograph. There are independent uh, scholars, Richard Smoley, uh, Gary Lackman, a, a whole really wonderful wide range of people. Um, I mean, my God, I haven't even mentioned Jocelyn Godwin, who I consider the 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 the, the occultism's great man of letters. You know, mm-hmm. there's quality output going on today. Jeff Kripal, yeah, there's Jeff a Kripal, yeah. Um, Project Hindsight and the work that they're doing to translate ancient Hellenic astrological texts into English. Um, you've got Western astrologers studying the Vedic astrology system. Uh, you've got good, sturdy translations of the Hermetica coming out. You've got new, uh, pretty sturdy translations of the Gnostic literature coming out. We're still digesting the impact of, of Nag Hammadi and probably will for a long time long to come. Time. Um, I'm sitting watching the Barbie movie and at least for the first 20 minutes, that is a Gnostic film. That is a Gnostic (laughs) film, you know, it does have elements. Yeah. Here's this, you know, she's living in this dream world and everything is just fine until existential thoughts come in. And then the question fucks everything up, you know, and, 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 and I thought, you know, there's so many films that people identify quite rightly, you know, you name it, Uh, Truman show. I mean, we've watched some of them together that are legitimate legitimately uh grounded in 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 a, in a gnostic outlook and yeah so I, I think actually things are going pretty damn well um i'm very excited by the quality of literature that's out there i posted a um a piece at medium uh called i think it was the 10 most revelatory books i read while writing modern occultism and and of those 10 it was a very short list too short but of those 10 I would say eight are pretty recent, you know, including some that have been published in the 2020s. So I think um, I think actually occult studies are really deepening. And as I alluded earlier, I believe um, we may be in the midst right now of a kind of uh, petite renaissance uh, of of occult of occultism and esotericism attributable to Nagamati, the Hermetic literature, uh, the translations. Um, the New Hermetic Scholarship, Walter Honigraf just published a very, very important book mm-hmm. on uh, our hermetic source material and how problematic it is, which is something we owe it to ourselves to be aware of. Um, and and I would also say this is all being helped along by the mainstreaming of the UFO thesis. Uh, because oh, yeah. the UFO thesis has gone mainstream and brings with it uh, questions of interdimensionality, that starts to interact with the interests of people who care about the occult and metaphysics. I mean, if we're talking about an invisible world, an unseen world, um, a dimension or intersection of time or undulating string, these are all just names for things that we we can't wrap our arms around. They're all metaphorical in a certain sense. And uh, that's that's part of the conversation that I think students of the occult want to want to want to be in on. So uh, uh, and plus, it's hard to say how uh, a, a zeitgeist gets shaped. I mean, wh- what shaped the sixties? I, I don't know. When did it really begin? Was right. it the Beats? Was it Kennedy? Was it Lenny Bruce? Was it the Beatles? You know, when, when did the sixties officially begin and, and why did 
this zeitgeist gets so fully shaped so that by 1968, Elvis's comeback special, he's singing a, 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 a protest-infused song, you know, which you couldn't imagine Elvis having done like even months earlier. And so it may be in our own time as the UFO thesis continues its um, its 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 establishment into the mainstream firmament of thought. It's the subject that can't be avoided. Uh, that'll bring ripples with it, and that may that may further uh, interest in and and more important than interest in depth of quality of the occult. I don't know if more people are interested in it today. I, I have no um, insight on that, but in terms of quality in terms of quality which is what really matters um i think i think this is a golden moment i would agree with you these are yeah strange times but that's a good thing well awesome i've got one question from the audience and then i want to talk about your event in a few days that we should definitely include but i had uh first uh thanks for where's all my buttons here Thank you very much, Chester, for the super chat, the support. Really appreciate it. Let me know if you have a question. I'll try to get to it. But Matthew, who was, um, you were chatting with him briefly before the show. He sent me a message on Discord. But his question was, uh, what are your thoughts on occult diet practices? I recently read Dion Fortune's Sane Occultism where she makes cases for both vegetarian and non-vegetarian diets. In fact, she says that vegetarian diet may actually be detrimental for the occult student in the long run. Do you have a, a stance on this? or I, it, It's not an area that I've studied. Um, it, it, it probably has its roots in, in some of our medieval grimoires. Mm. Um, I have not really participated in uh, dietary-driven programs, which exist in the mainstream religions too. Of course, you know, um, we have we have Lent within Catholicism. We have well, look, you know, Yom Kippur is coming up within Judaism, where you you don't eat at all, and then of course you have the laws of Kashrut within Judaism. Um, I, I've never particularly been interested in uh, pursuing. Um, a line of, of search that way. So I have to confess lack of familiarity. Yeah. I always say, follow your gut. I had once a premonition and I ended up being seven years vegetarian, but I knew my body, something told me take this road. And now these days yeah, I, I was back. vegetarian for 10 years for ethical oh, okay. reasons. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. uh, but I started to feel like for me, the diet wasn't very healthy. And so I started eating meat again. You know, I don't, I'm not yeah. at ease with it, but, but that's where I am right now. That's what the voice said is that you're not getting enough. Your brain is going to collapse if you don't get more meat in it or more pro, <laughs> you know, and the voice. So I just went back uh, recently, but so it is. Uh, or we can do what the, what the gospel of Thomas says, what enters your mouth, your mouth will not defile you. It's what comes out of your mouth, which will defile yeah. which people on the internet. I wish they would follow. Right. Well, it's, it, yeah, I do wish they would follow it, right? But you know, when you type works. on the keyboard, will defile you. <laughs> that suggests uh, part of the reason I think, although most people didn't have the opportunity to read that, they might have heard it said, and that suggests the reason why I think Christianity had such a pull on people in late antiquity. They were getting very sick of the thickness of uh, liturgies and letters of the law, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, for certain. A lot of different people in the you know Mediterranean Persian area. Yeah, yeah. 
And I always loved uh, Shabbat Zevi and how he would just break laws in the synagogue. Everywhere he went, he would just piss people off. He just again, he was like an he was like a rock star. I like yeah. these kind of people. Yeah. <laughs> but here is uh, you want to talk about your presentation in a few days? Oh, sure. Um, I'm going to be in. I'm flying to Los Angeles tomorrow, Tuesday, the nineteenth, and I am going to be uh, giving a presentation at the Philosophical Research Society. Uh, first on Wednesday night, Wednesday uh, the 20th, and uh, that's going to be with the artist Chet Czar, who is just an extraordinary uh, creator of monsters. And uh, he is a painter. He is a sculptor. He uh, had a, a really, really distinguished career for a very long time as a um, special effects maestro in the film world. Uh, and Chet is just a, a dark genius with an enormous heart. And so I'm going to be giving a presentation with him Wednesday night. Friday night is the launch of Modern Occultism. Uh, Friday night, I'm delivering a lecture and I'll be doing a book signing. This is at Philosophical Research Society in Griffith Park. Uh, they're prs.org. And, um, and, and so Friday night, I'll, I'll be giving a general lecture on the themes in Modern Occultism. And uh, and signing the book, so uh, that's it's kind of an exciting week. And this is this uh, just a physical event, both or it no? You can, you can watch it on uh, on Zoom and online as well. So if you go to PRS, they have like a ticket link, and if you can be there in person, terrific. If you can't be there in person, you could do a, a Zoom thing, uh, and they also have the book for sale. But the book is available anywhere. Ah, very cool. So you'll be there Wednesday night. On Wednesday and Friday night. Wednesday and Friday night this week. Yeah. All right. We'll check it out. I'll throw I will definitely throw it on the show notes, including the book of the link. Um, the link for the book. Yada yada yada. Uh also oh wait, one more question. This is an odd sure. one, but um <laughs> thank you, Dana Mudda. Uh Mitch, you wore Toppy Cross on What's conference. It? They still active. Do you know what she said? Oh yeah. About? We've got lots of Topi crosses here. Yeah, they're floating around. Um, What's a Topi cross? Uh, Topi is Temple of Psychic Youth. They were a punk, oh. occult, oh, arts collective, yeah. um, really brutally suppressed unfairly during the Satanic Panic. Yeah, uh, you've written about them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two of the two of the key founders, uh, Genesis P. Orridge and. Uh, Laura Peorge uh, and their their daughters Caress and Jeunesse, uh were unable to return to England. They were they were off um, feeding the poor and the destitute in Nepal. They heard, "Hey, Scotland Yard has just raided uh, Toby houses in 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 London and and Bristol. Uh, all these fake trumped up, you know, uh, satanic ritual abuse charges. I mean, just 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 complete calumny and fantasy." Um, all of it discredited, all of it discredited, and in a relatively short time, too. But um, because uh, these guys were in Scotland Yard's uh, uh, crosshairs um, and there were kids involved, they couldn't return home. So they had to exile here in the United States. And my partner, mm -hmm. Jacqueline Castell, is working on a, a documentary about this. So it's a topic of deep concern to me. Uh, Toby strictly speaking, is not active today, but there's so many seedlings that, that have spread from it. I would say the influence and, and, and those who were part of that experimental period are still producing very potent work. Well, cool. And didn't you get a Yaldabaoth Demiurge tattoo recently, too? I beg your pardon? 
Didn't you get like a demiurge yelled about? That? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah show the world that yeah. you're. Um, yeah, this is upside. Yeah, I see, yeah, yeah, I see the demiurge. You know, we sort of honor like the different uh, roles that Abraxas played. You know, among different Gnostic sects. You know, for some yeah. demiurge, for some uh, deity or 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 being like a sun god to be appealed to. So I, I like the ambiguity of the figure and how you know, as you said, the. Joseph Smith's family knows about uh, Brock and the power of Abraxas, as they said it. And um, Did you know that uh, Abraxas was uh, Charles Manson's patron god? <laughs> oh, great. Uh, <laughs> well, that's because Herman, here. Um, Herman Hesse was so popular in the late 60s in L.A., so the Beach Boy. I mean, he was like people reading Damien, and, of course, the book talks about Abraxas and all that, so... You know, uh, the Wilson brothers and were very into Abraxas, obviously, Carlos uh, Santana. You know what I mean? He was just yeah, a yeah, yeah. popular god. And yeah. Charles Manson just also adopted him. <laughs> uh, and now, and, and how to win friends and influence people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Apparently, according to, uh, there's a very good journalist. Oh, his name is escaping me. He did a, um, Jeff Wynn. He did a bio of Manson a few years ago, and he uncovered that he was reading Dale Carnegie uh, in Reformatory mm -hmm. to learn how to win friends and influence people. Um, <laughs> it is a very shrewd program. It's a very, very um, well. Carnegie uh, had a lot of insight into human nature. That book also shows up in uh, Roman Polanski's film The Ninth Gate. Oh, of course. How we got from Abraxas to Dale Carnegie, I can't say, but it all adds up. You know? It started with Carrie and John Travolta, Buckets of Blood, and, <laughs> and here it we ends are. There. Yeah, yeah, with Charles Mann. Such a positive note. See, we are Gen X. We can't be happy, Mitch. It's just not in our DNA. I don't know that I'm Gen X. I, I, what is, I, I'm not sure. I may I may not have uh, made so it you born, generational you? parameters. When were you born? I think you are. Uh, November 23rd, 1965. Yeah, you're Gen X. You're, oh, okay. I think so. I belong. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So awesome. Well, uh, why don't we wrap it up? Any last words you want for the audience about your book, Modern Occultism? I really enjoyed it. Like, you, you know, you. you read it. It took me like two days, and I was like, again, it was not this encyclopedic heavy stuff. It was just a good book to just sit there and enjoy and get all these wonderful insights and get sort of a, a good view of, of Hermes. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate it enormously. And um, uh, if, you know, if, 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 if the description of the book turns you on, you know, I appreciate your support of it enormously. It's out in print, uh, digital and audio uh, starting tomorrow. And um, I, I participated this summer in a conference that um, Miguel and his colleagues organized uh, it was held in Wheaton, Illinois, at the campus of the Theosophical Society. And um, what was it called? Uh, meet the Archons. Meet the Archons. Yeah. Play meet the Fockers, by the way. Yeah, or Meet the Flintstones. Kind of both. Yeah, oh, okay. And both. Um, and so so Miguel, you know, brought together um, different Gnostic seekers, uh, scholars, writers, some in academia, some independent folks, some with you no. Know, apparent uh, uh, source of living or household, but everybody, you know, <laughs> dedicated and intellectually powerful. And um, it was such a wonderful, wonderful exchange. And that's the kind of thing that makes me respond in the affirmative when I'm asked, do I think occult studies right now are in a good place? They're really in a good place. 
And, you know, I was reminded of something as, as, as we were talking about it, and this is a bit of repetition, so forgive me, but I think it's important. Um, you know, we often speak of the potency of a movement based upon its outreach or the, the, the breadth of its appeal, its number of members, but really the only measure of, of, of health in a thought movement is, is this quality of ideas, um, the excellence with which these ideas are spoken about, written about, turned into media so that we can have an exchange. And um, we really have to remember, it behooves us as a subculture to remember that we're not here for the numbers. You know, numbers are nice and numbers can be important, but we're not here for that. Uh, we're here for the quality of the exchange. So you facilitated that, the show facilitates it, and um, I think we're in good shape. Yeah, and I think and I think you hit it on the head. It's uh, it's about listening to other points of view and just that's it. Listen at the conference, there were theosophists, there were occultists, there were right wingers, there were Gnostics, there were people with all this varying degree of spiritual and political ideas, and everybody at the parties during the conference questions just listened and asked questions. Nobody right. nobody got offended, which was that's a victory, Mitch. Nobody got offended. It, it was it was a real exchange, and there yeah. was a diffuse group of people there, you know, as you were just alluding. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, when people respect the search, um, you, can, you can have an authentic exchange, and it doesn't just evolve into these contests. And that's it, you know, if people respect the search, so much becomes possible. Amen. All right. Well, that's a good positive note to end it on. And uh, great idea. Thank you, those in the chat room. I like your ideas. I like somebody said uh, Eliphas Presley. He kind of created his own little <laughs> egregore. You have somebody to use created that their, yeah, their, his own little egregore. So that could be a movie. Uh, so good quotes. Uh, thanks for the support, everybody. Definitely get Mitch's book. Uh, you won't regret it. It will be on your shelf. You will lean on it throughout your life when you're looking for ideas, inspiration. Check out Mitch in L.A. this week, online or physical, and that's it. So uh, good Monday. Yeah. So, uh, Mitch, as always, thanks for uh, coming on and always glad to talk to you at any point. You know. Thanks for everything, man. I greatly appreciate it and uh, be in touch soon. All right. Well, everybody, have a good rest of your Monday. Have a good rest of your week. And uh, we will have some shows soon this week and next week. Uh, as I always say, write your own gospel, live your own myth. And yes, this is the age of Hermes. Enjoy it. <laughs>